Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So reads the Word of God. So opens Romans chapter 7. This passage of Scripture that is one of the most familiar, the most compelling, the most experientially relevant passages in this whole exceedingly relevant letter. It's an amazing text of Scripture. Because it is familiar, it may be one of the most common entry points into this letter for those who have no real familiarity with Romans at all or, or maybe even with the Bible more generally. This is a passage of Scripture that's weighed its way into the, the, the minds and hearts, the consciousness of our age even, to the point where it can still be quoted, oftentimes I'm guessing not even remembering that it comes from God's Word. But it is an exceedingly familiar passage. It just captures the human struggle with sin in ways that, that don't require saving faith in order to understand. You can get this no matter where you come from. You could share these thoughts, a portion of this chapter at least, with anyone, and they're probably going to say, wow, yeah, I'm like that. Later in this very chapter, Paul writes the words that are familiar to us who read Romans on an annual basis, I'm sure, at least, right? Right? Are you with me, folks? <laughs> I, am, I am communicating with you, right? Among us who read Romans, I'm sure, on an annual basis, at least. Yeah, good. Thank you. Yes, I'm sure that's true. Words that are very familiar to us. Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Continues on, and in verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That's where we're headed. Everybody gets that. Everyone says, wow, that, that's me. Even those who've never trusted Christ as Savior say that. 
They recognize that they can't live up to the standard of good that exists in their mind. Everybody gets that. That is actually part of the expression of what we read in the first chapter of Romans, that this work of God, our image-bearing status, His design for who we are and how our minds work, actually put us in the place of recognizing what He's created to the point where we're without excuse when we stand before Him, even if He said, I never believed in God. God's own testimony is, I gave you enough to understand who I am and to seek after me. I gave you enough for you to be accountable for your own sin. Here we see it coming back here in Romans 7 in ways that are just eloquently expressed to the point where we get it, we understand it. And even people who despise the idea of God would say of themselves, man, I can't live up to my own standard." God made us to, to recognize that, to feel it, and to own it. The potential range of meaning in this chapter is, in fact, so wide that even the most conscientious commentators are forced to consider a wide range of possibilities about who Paul is even talking about here. Is he talking about unbelievers? Because it would surely fit for them. Or is he talking about pre-Christian Jews who are just becoming to understand that, they're just coming to the point of understanding that the law helps them in one way but surely doesn't in another? Or is he talking about nominal Christians who are still more committed to the way of death than to the way of life? Or... Is it actually possible that genuine believers who've died to sin, chapter 6, verse 2, and a number of other places, is it actually possible that genuine believers who have died to sin in Christ might still struggle with sin to the depths that Paul describes here in this chapter? Well, this is a huge question. And it's a question that we can't help but ask from our own individual vantage point as we enter into Romans chapter 7. But it's not the main point of the passage. That's not the primary thing Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7. What we see here primarily in Romans 7 is Paul's description of the believer's relationship to the law, the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, written down and coded in the first five books of the Bible, and then exposited in varying ways, in varying genre through the rest of the Old Testament. What Paul is talking about here primarily is the believer's relationship to the law, both Jews and then, by extension, Gentiles. As we heard back in chapter 2 of this letter, the, the law of God is written on our hearts. It's part of that whole picture that has even unbelievers identifying with this passage. It's been encoded into us. And we recognize the fact that we don't own up to it. We don't live up to it. But when we do, on those occasions where we actually do the thing that we want, 
we're acknowledging the fact that the law of God is at work within us. Chapter 2, verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. It means their very lives are affirming the truth of God's law. Well, this opening paragraph in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6 that we're looking at this morning sets up the whole chapter on this subject of the believer's relationship to the law. It sets up the whole chapter. It gives us the content we need, expressing the central point that when we have died to sin, we have also died to the law. There's the central point. When we have died to sin, we've also died to the law. Now, if you're in a place this morning thinking, wow, this is going to be a theology lecture. I don't know if I can stay with it. Stay with it. Paul is repeating himself here. He's giving us in the first six verses of chapter 7 essentially a review of what he has given us in chapter 6, but he's adding something to it on his way to where he's headed in verses 7 to 25 of this chapter, right? So stay with it. This is helpful, and one of the most practical ways that it will be helpful, I would suggest to you, is when we gather at the table of communion afterward. Thankful for what's accomplished in us by the death of Christ. What we're going to see in this morning's text is some of the benefit and the blessing that the death of Christ has accomplished for us. What our inheritance is in Christ because we have been baptized with him into his death. That's where chapter 6 started. That's still what Paul is talking about here. So the central point that we have died to sin, when we have died to sin, we have died to the law also. Not meaning that the Word of God, those first five books, or the Old Testament as a whole, it doesn't mean when we've died to the law that somehow those aren't the Word of God for us any longer. That's not what Paul is talking about. But that the law no longer has dominion over us. It's a key idea for us to understand at this stage of Paul's meticulously ordered argument. It's very important for us to understand that not only have we died to sin in Christ, but we've died to the law in the sense that it doesn't have dominion over us any longer. We are no longer under its curse. We're no longer under its condemnation. To use a word that might ring familiar in your ear from the book of Romans and one that we'll mention as we get closer to the end this morning. We're no longer under the curse of the law. We're no longer under the condemnation of the law. The law was the definitive word of God under the reign of sin, the reign of Adam that we've heard about since chapter 5. But we've been freed from that reign in Christ. We are now under his reign those who have trusted Christ as Savior. This is where chapter 7 is headed. Let's look at these first six verses now and see how this works. Two parts to this morning's message, and you can see them again, as usual, listed there in your bulletin. First, the law brings bondage to death as long as we live. The law brings bondage to death as long as we live. That's verses 1 through 3, and then 4 through 6. The death of Christ brings freedom to serve God. That's a blessing just here, just to read. That's a summary statement. Let's see how Paul unpacks that in this passage. So first, the law brings bondage to death as long as we live, verses 1 through 3. The first 
This first part of the chapter, these first three verses, actually have two parts as well. The principle in verse 1 that stands over this whole paragraph and really stands over this whole chapter, <clears throat> and then the picture, we might say, or the illustration that comes in verses 2 and 3. So part 1, verses 1 to 3, has two parts, the principle and the picture. Let's look at it. Verse 1, or do you not know, brothers, quick comment here, it's an unusual opening. You might have a passage or a translation that says, surely you're not ignorant, that's a little hard, but that's a, that is what Paul is saying here. And it's a pretty uncommon opening line for him, even though it rings familiar with several other ways that he words a similar thought. This one only appears twice, right here in, in the previous chapter, chapter 6, verse 3. Only two times in Paul's, all of Paul's writing that this is his opening. Or do you not know, brothers? Essentially, he's saying, I'm sure you know. You're not ignorant of the fact for I'm speaking to those who know the law, he says. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. He's saying, surely you know this. Surely you're not ignorant of this because it's such a simple and direct statement, but it's of profound importance in the argument that he's forming. Now, one of the things we have to note here is that it's not immediately clear because of how put, Paul put this. It's not immediately clear who he's talking to at this point. It surely seems like it should be the same mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles that he's been talking to since the beginning of the letter. But then we have to ask, would he really make this statement to Gentiles, the one that he makes here? I'm speaking to those who know the law. Really? You're going to identify the, the Gentiles in that way? Well, I'm telling you from reading on this this past week, we could spend a long time unpacking options for how this uh, should best be understood. But I actually think that we can cut through it to hear Paul's point without having decide, to decide exactly all the details of how he means it. Essentially, we can grant that everyone in Paul's audience there in the Roman church is, is acquainted with law in some form or other. Whether Jews who know the law of Moses or Jews and Gentiles together living under Roman law as citizens of the empire. They all understand law and they understand how law works. They all know and have sufficient experience with how law works in order to understand the illustration that he's giving here to make the point that when you die, the law no longer has dominion over you. And it's an easy enough to understand statement. Surely, in context now, Paul is pointing primarily to the law of Moses here because that is the touch point through all of the rest of the chapter. And surely, the Gentiles in the Roman church, as we can see in a number of places, would have had some familiarity with the law of Moses. But also... The point that Paul is making here, the illustration that he employs in the next two verses, verses 2 and 3, would work for any expression of the law. You could use this illustration even if you were talking about Roman law or talking about the concept of law in general or talking about the Mosaic law in particular. It works for all of them. And so the ambiguity doesn't really or shouldn't really uh, waylay us for too long trying to figure out exactly which he's talking about. The law of Moses is surely primary because of the context of the passage, but it works 
for any expression of law. And once he says this, I'm speaking to those who know the law. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. He then moves off into his illustration in verses 2 and 3. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. It's not hard to understand, is it? You're following me? You're good? Okay. Folks, you're losing your sense of humor here. I'll tell you what. <laughs> there are some questions that really are just funny, all right? Now, the Word of God never is, but sometimes we read things in the Word that are so abundantly clear that we understand why Paul might begin by saying, you're not ignorant of this, are you? It's clear. Verse 3, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with a man while her husband is alive. No problem. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay, thank you, Paul. We appreciate this. The law is only binding as long as we live. And we've got an obvious illustration that shows us that. It's understandable. We can see the point clearly. We can grant it easily. Before we move on and build on this foundation, though, just one quick side note. Be careful when people use this passage to build their view of divorce and remarriage. Paul is not teaching on that subject here. All right? He's using marriage as an example of how the law works toward making the point that death delivers from obligation to the law. It even delivers from obligation to the law with regard to marriage, which is the firmest, most lasting covenant expression of law that we're experienced with. But there's some who want to back into this text and use it as sort of an argument that contributes to the debate and the discussion of divorce and remarriage and how to understand that biblically. It's not unrelated because it does draw on marriage. But what it gives us is, far, is a far narrower word of testimony than we would often expect as we're looking for something to help us understand how to think about that category, that increasingly challenging category in our day of divorce and remarriage. So just that's really a side note, but one that's worth mentioning when reading this text of Scripture. From there, Paul moves on into his summary and key verse in this paragraph, and actually our theme verse from today, that also moves us now into the second category of this discussion. The death of Christ brings freedom to serve God in verses 4 through 6. Look at verse 4. Likewise, he says, or, or really just in the same way as what we've just said, drawing on this evident illustration that's easy enough to understand, in the same way, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law. Do you hear what he's saying? As simple and blatantly obvious as that illustration just was about marriage, that when your spouse dies, you're not still married to them. As simple as that was, in the same way, in the same way, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit to God. Okay, we are out of the simple and into the complex. 
The simple has set us up perfectly to understand that something that blatantly evident and obvious is the basis by which we understand what he just said. Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit to God. Wow. This verse is the reason why we didn't try to cover all of chapter 7 in one sermon. This is the verse that stops us in our tracks and says, we need to let that one sink in. We need to reflect on that. We need to ruminate in this whole idea of what Paul is saying here. Verses 1 to 6 convey the central thrust of this chapter. So we're getting a sense of the whole chapter in these opening six verses. And verse 4, make no mistake, is the heart of verses 1 to 6. This opening assertion is massive. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. The law of God is the word of God. And you have died to the law through the body of Christ. This is where we hear that the law belongs to the old realm of Adam. Of the flesh, of sin, of death. The law belongs in that realm. Not in this new one. So just as we've died to sin... Through faith in Christ, being baptized into, him, into his death so that we too might be dead to sin. Chapter 6, verses 2 to 4. Just as we've died to sin, we have also died to the law. That death needs to happen in order for us to belong to another. We die to the law, not just to sin, but to the law that we might be joined to Christ. We were bound by covenant oath to the law. It was the word of God. And we are freed from that in order to belong to Christ. If theological alarms are going off in your head right now, perfect. That's perfect. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. All right? This is uncomfortable territory, one of the reasons why you would take chapter 7 altogether. Because the second half of chapter 7 balances the scales from what we're hearing right now. Give you that so that those alarm bells aren't distracting to you as you listen. All right? This death to sin, this death to the law through the body of Christ needs to happen for us to belong to another namely to Christ, which is then the necessary precondition for us to bear fruit to God. That's how the verse finishes. To walk in newness of life, the way it was said back in chapter 6, verse 4. If we're going to walk in newness of life, we have to be raised with Christ. But if we have to be raised with Christ, we also have to die with Christ. And if we die with Christ, we have died with Christ to sin 
And now to the law. There's Paul's argument in his key verse of verse 4. He continues on, For while we were living in the flesh, that is, while we were still under the reign of Adam and of death, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. There's where we were at the time. We can't help ourselves. We couldn't help ourselves and still can't in this way. Even what we call good works in this life and this world that we live in is devoted to them. Their hope is in their good works. That somehow all it takes in order to be in good standing with God is to have a few more good works than bad works that they'll outweigh it. And folks, everybody I've met believes that their good works outweigh their bad. But we can't help ourselves in this situation. We can't help ourselves at this point of need. Even what we call good works in this life aren't pleasing to God under his reign. They are just a product of our sinful hearts trying to redeem themselves by their own self-styled and selfishly motivated expressions of good works as they understand good. That's all that's happening. I think this is good. I do that. God will approve. Paul is saying, not even once will that ever happen. Under his realm, it is only through dying with Christ and being raised with him that we are freed from the standard of the law that tells us God's absolute perfection is our standard. So unless you can stand up and say, not only have I done good works and my good have outweighed my bad, I am perfect. Then this argument applies to you and you are lost and dead in your sin. These good works have no value to God. And it is the law that makes that clear to us. That's its role. But that part isn't today's passage. That part's next week's passage. God willing, we'll get there in due course. This week's passage, we're hearing about death to the law. The natural question that should fill our minds, what those alarm bells are, are, are calling for, the, the, the wording that they want is in the most generous of language. If the law belongs to the reign of Adam and the flesh and sin and death, then is the law itself actually sinful? Is the word of God sinful? And the way that we can know we're on the right track in asking that question is just to look at verse 7, which opens next week's text. And we can see right there that that is the very question Paul poses next. So if we've got the uncomfortability within us that says, does this mean the law is evil? We're, we're right with him. We're tracking with Paul's argument. In other words, Paul here is really in danger of being heard to say that God's revealed standard of holiness under the old covenant 
is sinful and fuels sin. He is in genuine danger. In fact, he's been accused of that. We've already seen that back in chapter 3. But he is very much in danger of falling under that accusation. That God's revealed standard of holiness in the Old Covenant is sinful and fueled sin. I mean, didn't we just read that sinful passions are aroused by the law? That's exactly what we just read. And Paul will get to that next. So will we, again, God willing, next week. But before he defends the law's goodness, and that's exactly the word he uses, verses 12, 13, following. Before he defends the law's goodness, we need to see the sin and death that the law identified, that it confirmed, that it condemned, providing no avenue of escape for us. We need to see that first and let that sink in and then recognize what a breath of fresh air it is when that corner is turned, and that corner is turned before we finish this morning's text. That is Paul's present point, though. The law awakens and arouses and identifies sin and brings it under condemnation, providing no avenue of escape. That's his present point, verse 6. But now, oh, hear those when they come, right? There's a corner being turned. But now, we are released from the law in Christ, having died in him, united with him in a death like his, having died to that which held us captive, that's the law, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We have been freed for a purpose toward an end, toward an outcome that can only be achieved by this means. Now, this is the second time that we've seen this language, this contrast in Romans, this letter-spirit contrast. We saw it back in chapter 2. And back there, it was contrasting physical circumcision with circumcision of the heart. And referred there to spirit versus letter, chapter 2, verses 27 to 29. So really, in both places, both there and here, as we've gotten to this one in, in context, in both places, it's primarily contrasting life under the old covenant as compared to life under the new. Or we might say the, the old realm and the new. The reign of Adam and the flesh and sin and death on the one hand and the reign of Christ and the spirit and righteousness and life on the other hand. The letter spirit description and contrast is capturing that comparison. So, before reassuring us of the goodness of the law, Paul tells us of our freedom from its unyielding condemnation in Christ. He'll go on and talk about the goodness of the law, but before he does so, he will tell us of our freedom from its unyielding condemnation gained by faith in Christ. Verse 4, we have died to the law through the body of Christ so that we may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, and we with him, to Christ, 
in order that we may, may bear fruit to God, in order that we may walk in newness of life, chapter 6, verse 4, in order that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit, verse 6, right here, to the praise of God's glory. We've died to Christ, and that's what results. This, this, my friends, is our hope today. This is why we pause in these six verses and hear them in context. It gets us set up rightly to move into the rest of chapter 7, the more familiar part of it, and it reminds us of what is ours in Christ, what is our hope. This is what makes us grateful to God as we come to the table of the Lord, as I mentioned a few minutes ago. This is not just what makes us desire to, the rem to remember the body and blood of the Lord. It's not just what makes us determined to remember the body and blood of the Lord. This is what makes us able to remember the body and blood of the Lord. This is what transitions our hearts such that this celebration actually means something to us. And we recognize what it is to remember. It's not just a, an opportunity to catalog all of my sins and make sure they have been cleansed, although that's an essential part of it. We should examine ourselves before we come to the table. It's not just an opportunity to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, although it is that, and Paul makes that clear in that very same passage of 1 Corinthians 11. It's also an opportunity to anticipate sitting down with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb described in Revelation 19, just as he said, I won't drink the fruit of this vine again until I drink it with you at that table. And this helps us remember that that's coming. It remembers all of the fruits that the death of Christ has purchased for us. It helps us to remember. It enables us to remember the death of our Lord on our behalf because in his death, removing sin and absorbing God's wrath for all who believe, remember, he's the propitiation. Because of his death, we're freed. Not only from death, our greatest fear, but from the law, from its condemnation that falls upon us for failing to live out the righteousness of God on our own, for failing to live up to the righteousness of God on our own, for failing to exhibit in our behavior the very perfection of the righteousness of God the way Jesus did. And because he lived that way as a man, he becomes a suitable sacrifice for our sins. And because he was God in the flesh as he did it, he becomes a, a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of all who believe. We're freed in Christ. And as we get on into the next parts of Romans, we'll see glorious descriptions of what that looks like. It's in dying with Christ, or it is dying with Christ, that leads to our being raised with him as well, in order that we may bear fruit to God, as we read in verse 4. Which means that any joy that we have in Christ, and for the next moment or two, I'm going to sound like I'm just quoting Philippians chapter 2, that's all headed toward the death of Christ as an expression of the humility of our Savior 
the second person of the Trinity, and God, the Trinity, who provided for our salvation. So any joy that we experience in Christ, any act of service that is enabled that genuinely qualifies as good works, any expression of love that we enjoy with one another, or comfort that we are able to extend, or encouragement, or hope, any fellowship we feel in the body of Christ, all of it is purchased for us by the shed blood of Jesus. And we can hear Paul beginning to build toward that in this very passage of Scripture. That's where he's headed. We're still taking small steps, and we want to run ahead and, and, and finish this one because of where we see him going. But the anticipation of where he's going, we need to resonate with the things he's saying on the way. This is the Word of God for us. And it's the means by which we will appreciate that all the more when we get there. But we can hear Paul starting to build toward it, even now with the language that he's using. Bearing fruit to God, serving in the new way of the Spirit. We're being tantalized here a bit. In fact, this is a pattern that we see several times in this letter to Romans. Paul introduces the next section of his argument with a poignant statement made as he's nearing the end of the previous section. He sets it up, and then he ties it off as he starts the next section. One of the clearest examples of this, the one that we're most familiar with, is really still to come. He pens chapters 9 through 11 of this letter in explanation and defense of his poignant statement in chapter 8, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Oh, really? Do they? It's not my experience. It doesn't seem to be my experience. And, and how about the Jews? It surely didn't seem to work out for them. All those promises made, and they don't even trust Christ as Savior. <laughs> Chapters 9 through 11 are written in order to explain and defend that poignant statement in 828 that all things work together for good. Here, the very familiar chapter 7, as we talked about it at the beginning, is essentially an explanation of his poignant statement in chapter 6, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Wow. What? Sin and law both go away in Christ? And chapter 7 is explaining that. And then right here in verse 6, we read another of those poignant statements that catches our ear. Surely it will return soon. And when it does, it will bring with it one of the most glorious passages in this whole letter. We read in verse 6, we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit. As soon as Paul has reassured us that the law is not sinful, even though it clarifies and magnifies our sin, placing us under its unyielding condemnation, 
Once Paul has reassured us that the law is not sinful, his next chapter opens with these words. There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Good news? That's where we're headed. Folks, this is our inheritance. It's our inheritance in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He's provided for you, for me, for all who believe, the privilege to bear fruit for God. His language of verse 4, to walk in newness of life. His language from verse 4 in the last chapter. He's given us the privilege to serve in the new way of the Spirit. Verse 6. He's opened up before us the way of salvation with all of its newfound freedoms from the condemnation of the law and from sin and from death in this life and then eternal fellowship with Him. Free of all reach of these things any reach of these things, law and sin and death, eternally in the life to come. My friends, this is our inheritance in Christ. So what do we say? We say, come now to the table of the Lord. All you who believe, so that we may be strengthened to remember. Amen? Pray with me now. And as we do, musicians, please return to the platform and communion servers, join me at the front. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a gloriously building and strengthening increasingly weighty argument Paul is presenting here to the Roman church reflecting on the truth of the gospel our sins removed from us as far as the east is from the west and the just wrath of God against our sin absorbed in the work of Christ on the cross our own dying to sin and to the law and its condemnation through receiving by faith the sacrifice Christ offered on our behalf so that we might walk in the way of the Spirit, the new way that we might bear fruit to God Heavenly Father, cause the teaching of the gospel that Paul has written to this church 
so many centuries ago to take root in our hearts afresh through this season of study in this letter, through this practice and involvement in corporate worship this morning, through this act of obedience to the command of the Lord into which we enter right now in order to remember. Father, manifest your grace among us, I pray, enabling us to remember with our lives, our minds, our hearts, our words, our actions, to remember the body and blood of the Lord aided by this ceremony. To the exaltation of Christ according to the power of your spirit, to the praise of your infinite glory, Amen.